This is John Hemminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast and ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. I invite you to listen in as our pastor discusses the subject of pestilence in the Bible. God's Word has much to say about pestilence or plagues and gives us answers concerning why diseases afflict us from time to time. However, you should be warned that the God of the Bible's clear statements may shock you at first until you look at this issue from His perspective. An error some professing Christians make in times of crisis is to seek to fit the events they see into biblical prophecies they may not fully understand. In this message, Pastor Jones focuses on truth that is clearly taught in the scriptures without engaging in unsubstantiated speculation. So I hope you'll join us as we hear a message entitled, Pestilence in the Bible. All right, if you would take your Bible, I'd like you to go to Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to look at a number of passages this morning. We're not going to hang on to one particular one. So if you would like to, um, if you want to follow, I know that uh, John will try to put up the verses um, for those of you watching at home on your screen. Uh, So if that's frustrating to you, maybe some of you want to mark some of these. So feel free to turn with me. Um, We're in Matthew chapter 10. Many of the verses we're going to cover are not going to mention uh, pestilence or plague. Uh, specifically, I did a, um, uh, a, a, took a number of hours uh, this week to look at uh, a number of verses dealing with this, and I can tell you that there are dozens of verses that talk about some kind of a plague or pestilence. And if you're wanting something to do to sp- spend some time, you can get a concordance out and you can go through a number of these passages that deal with this. Um, but I think um, it would be a better tactic for me to just kind of go through the scriptures on what uh, uh, on really how God relates to all of these things, and so Lord willing, we're going to do that this morning. We're going to start out. Uh, so again, a number of these verses, passages are not going to deal specifically with the issue. You won't find the word pestilence or plague in them, but uh, the principles that we gather from this, I think, we're going to help us on this subject. So the first one, Matthew chapter ten, verse twenty-nine to thirty-one, says. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and 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 not one of them uh, shall not fall to excuse me, and one of them shall not fall to on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, ye therefore ye are of more value than many sparrows. Now, the first thought I'd like to give you is a comforting thought, and that is God's sovereignty. Now, here's two. Is this the same guy? I think. And in this case, the hairs of his head, uh, when he was on the left, were a little bit more easily numbered. And evidently, he got some kind of hair growth thing, and so now he's got a few more hairs. Believe me, that does not taxing God out at all. Um, And God's sovereignty, let me just explain. The word sovereignty means his control. Okay, Just think about the fact that what I'm saying to you is that God is in control. And first of all, we see this in his, that the fact that he knows everything about you. Jesus' point with the fact that God knows the number of hairs on your head is that he knows everything about you. Um, he's always thinking. Though The psalmist would write, you think of me more than the, than, the, than the grains of sand. And the reality is that God knows us, knows everything about us, and is in control. Uh, because of that. So he knows everything about you. A second passage I'd like you to think about is Psalm 139, which means that God knows your present, your past, and your future. So Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6, I'd like to read these verses. And again, uh, they should bring a measure of comfort to us, as a matter of fact, great comfort to us. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. 
uh, David writes in this particular psalm, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Now think about that. He says, you know when I, when, when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you understand my thoughts before I think them. That's what he's saying. You understand how much, what's going, what's going to go through my mind a week from now. That's what he's saying. You understand my thought afar off. Verse 3, thou compassest my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So he's saying, you surround me. Okay, You're, you understand exactly where I'm going, where I've been, where I'm going, where I'm going to be. You're acquainted with all my ways. You know exactly what I've been doing, what I will do. Notice it, verse 4, for there is not a word in my tongue. <clears throat> excuse me, but lo, Lord, thou knowest it all together. <clears throat> he knows, excuse me, what I'm going to say before I say it. He knows what I'm going to say a year from now. He knows what I'm going to say if God allows me to uh, die before his, uh, Christ's return. He knows what I'm going to say on my deathbed. He knows every word in my tongue. Everyone. It's interesting that on a certain case, Jesus was about to heal a person who was uh, not able to speak. And it's rather interesting to me because the Bible says he sighed. And then he looked up and he said, be opened. And I just wonder <laughs> if the Lord didn't know. Okay, I'm going to give this guy the ability to speak, but I know he's going to say, he's going to say some dumb things. He's going to use it and it won't always be for good. You think of the ability that we have to speak. And God says, I know everything you've ever said and ever will say. That Again, verse, six, verse 5. Verse 4, I'm sorry. Um, uh, verse 5. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. The idea is, God, the, the ability of your knowledge and your control of my life is just mind-boggling. I cannot even begin to fully comprehend it. So we see that God knows your every, everything about you. God also knows your past, your present, and your future. And thirdly, God is sovereign over all events. And this is over all events of everything, including your life. So let's go to Romans chapter 11, right at the end of this chapter, where he's been dealing with God's sovereign plan for the nation of Israel. He comes to the end of this, and he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been his counselor? And I think we need to keep that in mind. There's a lot of people that somehow think they know what God is thinking, or they know that God cannot be thinking because of what's going on. And can I just say this? That is one of the most foolish things you could ever do, to think you know more than God. Or somehow you have the right to judge God. You have the right to counsel God. God, this is how things ought to be done. Verse 35. Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. By the way, God gave you the brain that you're using. God gives you the oxygen that you're breathing. And here we are. We're going to tell him what to do. Verse 36. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, get what he said. For of him, everything <laughs> comes from the hand of God. Every circumstance in your life, in my life, 
in the world through him. That means God is ruling over everything that happens. And to him, that means he's going to get the glory, are all things. So God's sovereignty is over all of his creation, over all of his works, over all circumstances. Now, let's stop for a moment and just ask ourselves, well, how does this work? And I want to take you back to the book of Job for a few moments. Job is in front of Psalms. Again, if you don't know where that's at, I'm sure um, uh, Brother John will put it up on the screen for you. But in Job chapter 1, we get a little bit of insight behind the scenes into one of the... Actually, if you wanted an example of dramatic irony, this is it. Where a character does not see what the audience sees. When you read the book of Job, we see a scene that two scenes, actually, that have tremendous import on the, on the account of Job, that Job has no idea these things went on. Job is, 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 is a godly and extremely wealthy man, and he's, he's, he's a, he is truly probably the most godly man on the planet at this time. He just, just loves the Lord. The Bible says he feared God. He, he, he despised evil. He really tried to walk with the Lord. And God prospered him in great ways. And, and we are brought in something to a scene that Job would never have a chance to see, probably never did, uh, before, his, uh, before he went home to be with the Lord, and that is a meeting between Satan and God over Job. And I'll back up to verse 8, because this is when the Lord speaks about Job. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth or hates evil? He's repulsed by evil. He's, God points Job out and says, this is a godly man. This is a man that loves me and, and hates evil. Satan, have you looked at him? Now, Satan's answer is very interesting. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, doth Job fear God for naught? Does he fear God for nothing? Thou hast made an hedge about him, about his house, about all that he hath on every side. You haven't you done that, Lord? Haven't you made this hedge around him? That's why I've used a picture of a, of a hedge. The idea is simply this. God's sovereignty does have an impact on all of your life and my life too. And we can say, yes, that all circumstances, Satan was not allowed to touch Job without God's permission. Every circumstance in your life. You say, well, is that luck? No, it's not. No, God is in every circumstance. You can try to explain it away. You can try to say, I don't want to believe that about God. And can I just tell you this? God's not going to blink at you. He's going to just say, well, that's just the way it is, pal. That's just the way it is. God's not upset about that. He's not worried about you judging him. The reality is you got to get your mind in line with his because he says, I'm in control of everything. That's what he said. And he's not blinking. He's not ashamed of it. You'll also notice he's in control of all people. You say, why do you know that? Because Satan is going to use people to afflict Job in just a few, in just a, a few verses. And he wasn't able to do that. At this point in his life, Satan is saying, I can't touch him. That meant none of Satan's people could touch him either. That wasn't going to stay. That hedge included all people. God is always working for good in his children's lives. Do you believe that? That's the truth. I'll show you a verse on that in just a moment. But can I also say this? If you don't know Christ as Savior, there is no such promise for you. 
I've heard many times people out in the community just saying, well, you know, there's a purpose in everything. I, I know that's what, you know, that's what the Bible says, and they're right on that. But can I tell you this? That purpose may not apply to you if you don't know Christ as Savior. You say, why do you say that? Well, let me show you a verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, very familiar verse for many of us. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. It doesn't say it works together for good for everybody. To those who love God. Now, who are the people that love God? It's, it's, it's what the statement is next. To those who are the called according to his purpose. That's saved people is what he's talking about. People have been called out by the Lord. People are his children. You say, well, why would God not work good in my life just because I don't know Christ as Savior? Let me just illustrate that by a simple painting that Rembrandt did a number of years ago, back in 1633, by the way. In that particular painting, and I hope you can see it at home, Right here, the guy who's at the foot of the cross is Rembrandt himself. He painted himself in that painting. And what he was saying by that was, I helped put him there. And can I just say to you as honestly as I can, that your sins and my sins put him there. But there was a time in my life where I surrendered my heart to God and I said, I am unworthy of your heaven. I deserve to be punished by you forever in hell. And I asked Christ to forgive me and to make me his child. I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. I wanted to belong to him. I wanted to stop being the person who was, who was in rebellion against God. But as long as you want to be part of running your own life and rejecting Christ as your Savior, you are, part of the, you are part of the problem. You are an enemy of God, and God is not working good in your life if you don't know Him. Now, if you come to know Him one day, yes, He will, absolutely. But that promise is not just a blanket promise. Well, I know there are many people that would say this. They would say, I understand that, okay, what the, the Bible does teach, all circumstances, all people, God is always working good in his children's lives. I can even buy into the fact that that promise is not for those who are in rebellion against God. But boy, it sure doesn't seem that way to me. I mean, what about the innocent person that's in the hospital because some drunk driver smashed into him? What about the child that gets abused? What about the mass killings that happen and the innocent women and children that die all across the world. Are you telling me, Pastor Jones, are you telling me that God's in that? And can I just say to you that God doesn't blink. And God says this, I am in control. Now, it's a little more complex than just a simple, and that's why one of the reasons why atheism is such foolishness, because uh, the, the situation is much more complex. We'll talk about it just a little bit here in a moment. But that brings us to a troubling thought. And that's the same idea of God's sovereignty. Because if God truly is in control and things, very negative things happen in my life or the lives of those who I love, how do I reconcile this? How do I reconcile the injustice? How do I reconcile that a virus can just come through and take my loved one away? Well, let me just tell you briefly, there are three books in the Old Testament that um, are, are interesting in how they relate the book of Proverbs, which many of you enjoy, is a book of general principles from the Scripture. It gives you lots of different things, but let me tell you, those are principles. They're not absolute promises, so many of them. They're how life tends to work. It's, it's, it's wisdom literature. It's intended to be that way. There's another book written by Solomon, and it's the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, Solomon gives many of the exceptions. The fact that it doesn't always work the way that you'd think it should work. 
And he mentions that throughout the book several times, different exceptions to how you'd think things would fit together. He's very upfront in the book. Of, and by the way, the same author, under the same inspiration of God. And then there's the book of Job. And Job, though not written by Solomon as far as we know, Job expresses individual exceptions in a life of an individual man who loves God, who the book starts out by God bragging on him, saying, there is not a man on earth like this man. And then God bringing suffering into his life. And so I want you to go back with me now to the book of Job and consider some other passages. Go to chapter 19 with me. Now, those of you that know the story of Job would remember that as a result of this conversation and another one that God would have with Satan, God gave Satan permission inside to get inside the hedge of Job's life. God gave Satan permission to, first of all, take everything Job had away. And so on, a, on one day, Satan was allowed to uh, bring natural disaster that destroyed um, some of his, uh, actually destroyed his children. A, a huge wind came in, what we call natural disaster, and collapsed the house where his 10 children had gathered together, had 10 children, all of them dead. He lost um, his, his, his uh, uh, many of his cattle and possessions of that nature being stolen by individuals. They murdered most of his servants, with the exception of one who came to tell him of the news. Several Fire came from heaven, from the skies, and burned up um, other parts of his possessions. In one day, Job lost it all, with the exception of himself and his wife. And that didn't cause Job to curse God. And, and, and then Satan came back and had another conversation. I'll just show you one verse out of that in a, in a, in a moment. But in that conversation, God uh, said, you know, uh, you can see that Job has still remained loyal to me. And Satan said, well, let me touch his body. Let me go after his health. And so God gave him permission to do that too. And so what you have here, when you try to explain the problem of evil, the, one of the issues that you really are going to have to grapple with is where did that evil come from? And when we say evil, I'm not just merely talking about sin. I'm talking about bad circumstances. Where did they come from? And can I say to you, you nor I really knows the answer to that completely. We'd all like to be able to shout down to Job, Hey, Job, God didn't do this. Satan did it. God just gave permission. But in a very real sense, in a very real sense, Job doesn't know all that, but he knows this. God could have stopped it. And every person that's gone through very difficult circumstances that you can't understand has had to grapple with that issue. If there is a God, like the Bible declares, then he could have stopped whatever happened to me. And you would be right on that. You'd be right. And so Job, in chapter 19, just begins to pour out his heart on this whole thing and how he feels about what God has allowed him to go through. You Notice verses 6 to 13, then we'll skip down to verse 21. Verse 6, chapter 19. Know now that God hath overthrown me, and hath compassed me with his net. Behold, I cry out of wrong, but I am not heard. I cry out aloud, but there is no judgment. And the reason, Job is saying, look, I didn't do anything that I know of to offend God, and he hadn't. That was the whole point. He hadn't done anything to offend God. Verse 8. And I want you to, if you mark in your Bible, circle how many times Job references God. I'm going to emphasize it as I read it. He, that's God, 
He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass, and he hath set darkness in my paths. He hath stripped me of my glory, taken the crown from my head. He hath destroyed me on every side, and I am gone. My hope hath he removed like a tree. He also hath kindled his wrath against me. He's wrong on that. God isn't angry, but he thinks he is. And he counteth me unto him as one of his enemies. His troops come together and raise up their way against me and encamp round about my tabernacle. He hath put my brethren far from me and mine acquaintances are verily estranged from me. Job is saying, all this disaster that has happened to me, it is God's fault. Verse 21, have pity upon me. He's talking to his friends who are trying to accuse him that he must have done something to offend God and Job hadn't. Have pity upon me. And have pity upon me, O, o, o ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Matter of fact, the word plague, one of the many meanings of, 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 of that word, and there's several different words in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament for plague or, or pestilence, one of them simply means to touch. God's touched me. Is that right? Is it, now, again, we know that Satan was the one that actually implemented this, but I want you to go back with me to chapter 2 and verse 3, that second conversation that God would have with, with Satan, where Satan again asks for Job's health. Verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? You'll notice God's still not mad at him. God is still admiring Job. And he still, and still he holdeth fast his integrity. Satan, even though you've done all these things to him, Job is still holding his, he's still godly, he's still holding his, his, his integrity. But notice the last part of the verse. Although thou movest who? Me against him to destroy him without cause. God ultimately is taking responsibility for what happened to Job, even though Satan did it. And the reason why is because the hedge was there, and God did choose to let the hedge come down. That's the reality. And so when you or I look into the circumstances of our lives, and even if we don't understand them, and yes, it may not be God that was the direct agent to do it. In that case with Job, it was Satan. But, it, but whether or not it was, and there can be human issues going on, just like those people that stole some of his cattle, there can be people that sin against you and all of that. And when we look at this coronavirus situation, there is a human element in it. Okay, how did this virus get going? Who's at fault with it? What, what about the spread of it? There's a human element in it. There is also um, possibly an evil element that, that goes on the spiritual realm. We don't know that. We can't see that any more than Job could. But I will guarantee you this. There is also a divine element in it. God has allowed this for a purpose, just like he did with Job. And although the purpose in Job's case was not to punish Job, it was to refine Job and to actually use him as an, etern to, to, to an eternal testimony that's rung down through the ages, many things that God was doing there. God, God takes responsibility because he allowed Satan to do what he did. Ultimately, God is in control of all events that touch your life. And although that may make some people angry and it may make some people frustrated, let me tell you something, it is also a great comfort because as a Christian, I know all things are going to work together for my good. That's the reality. It isn't a myth. It's not something you make up. It's, it's, it's not that God wakes up and says, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. 
Didn't know that was going to touch Lane's life. Oh, yes, he did. And I can get angry because I don't have all the answers, but the bottom line is God is in control and he is up to good in the lives of his children. That's reality. So what we see from this account in Job is that God at times allows Satan and others to make bad choices that will affect you and afflict you. That's true. He does. Let's look at another case. Isaiah chapter 45. Very interesting account here, Isaiah 45. If you want to flip there, what's going on is Isaiah, who lives around 700 uh, B.C., is prophesying of an event that will happen after his death. In uh, the uh, early, uh, let's see, it would it'd be around 586 B.C. The nation of Israel would be taken captive. Um, again, this would the captivity would have happened probably roughly 100 years after Isaiah's death. The nation of Israel would be taken captive and, and, and th uh, thrown into slavery in Babylon. And Isaiah's prophecy goes even farther than that. It goes another 70 years, so about 170 years after his death, roughly. Isaiah prophesies of a specific king that will come to the throne, not a Jewish king, but who is actually going to help Israel to come back into their land. Now, Isaiah is making this prophecy while his people are living in their land before the captivity, about 100 years before the captivity, about 170 years before this event would take place. The man's name was Cyrus. We know him as, uh, I believe, Cyrus the Great in history. Uh, he was the first uh, major king of the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered Babylon. And Cyrus the Great, um, I believe, was shown this passage very possibly by, um, well, at least some have thought it by Daniel, who would have been high in the government at that time. I'll show you why I believe that. But notice, if you would, Isaiah chapter 45. It is because, it's because this prophecy is so specific that those who do not believe in the authority of God's word have tried to argue that the entire second part of the book of Isaiah from chapter 40 on is not even written by Isaiah because they can't explain how this man could give the name of a guy 170 years before he was born, 170 years before the event would take place, excuse me. And yet he did. It shows you the power in the, of God. Isaiah 45, start with verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, so to subdue nations before him. God says, I'm going I'm I'm to take nations down. That would specifically be uh, ultimately the nation of Babylon, but there were others evidently that he conquered as well. And I will loose the loins of kings, which is rather interesting. The night that Cyrus's troops conquered Babylon, was the night that King Belshazzar uh, 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 saw a, the handwriting on the wall, if you remember. And the Bible says the loins of his, uh, the joints of his loins were, were, were loosed and his knees began to knock together. As he saw literally a hand writing on the wall. It's rather interesting that Isaiah referenced that about 170 years earlier. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates. These would be the late gates of Babylon and the gates shall not be shut. And historians have told us that Babylon was conquered basically in a night. That many of the gates that, 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 the, that the invading troops were going through were opened. They actually blocked up the Euphrates River. They walked up the riverbank, which was paved, after the water had, had, had gone through. And the gates that were even along the, 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 the sides of the river were not locked. And so they were taking prisoners as they were going, as they were dashing through the city. Very interesting, Isaiah's description of this again, 170 years before it happened. 
uh, verse uh, 2, I will go before thee, uh, make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which called thee by name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by name. I have, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Can you imagine God speaking down through time and saying, there's going to be a man born named Cyrus. I'm going to call him by name. He doesn't know me. One day he's going to read about me. And he's going to know I'm the one true God. Verse 5, I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is none else. This idea that there are many different gods, it doesn't really matter what you call them, is, is foolishness. God says, there's one God, I'm telling you who I am. Nobody else can do this. I'm naming you. Verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I'm the creator. I make peace and create evil. You see the word evil there? You know what it literally means? It means calamity. That's what the word means. God is saying, I am the one that brings peace. I am the one that brings calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. By the way, do we have any idea that Cyrus really did hear of this prophecy? Yeah, I think we, we do. We have actually two passages. I'll just give you the one. It's, it's in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's the last verse of that book. Cyrus makes a decree. Listen to what he says. Thus saith King Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me. He hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. That's exactly what God said for him to do. And so he awoke to the fact because somebody showed him, whether it be Daniel or somebody else, God showed him, look, I have prophesied that this is what you are to do. And he said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I realized something. God is sovereign over all creation. Now, that troubles some people. Let me give you another example. Because look, God says, I am in charge of calamity. I, I, I'm, I rule over that. How about this one? Uh, Amos chapter 3. Oh, by the way, let me just show you this. I, I love this photograph. I've done this, for, but some of you may not have be familiar with our church. You may not have seen this. This is a very famous photograph called the pale blue dot. It's actually probably on a 90-degree angle. Uh, really, the, the, um, the, the true shot is, is, is flipped, but... Uh, they, uh, what this is, is back in 1990, the Voyager 1 was coming to the edge of the solar system. And so they turned it back one more time to get a view, if they could, if they could catch uh, the Earth as, they were, uh, as the Voyager 1 was, was leaving the solar system. And it was 3.7 billion miles from Earth. Uh, I don't know if you can find it there on that photograph. I'll put a circle around it. That's Earth. Now, what God is saying, when I want you to think about this, in light of, of this passage, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7 and 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... Now, folks, this is only our earth 
from the vantage point of the edge of our solar system, which is nothing compared to the universe. The God that made all of that and all that beyond our solar system. You know what he says? He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You can't figure me out. You can't explain to me why I'm doing this, why I'm doing that. There's no way. So when I tell you that I'm in control, just believe it. When I tell you that I'm righteous, you're going to have to believe that. You're not going to be able to put the equation together. You can't do it. Another passage on the same line is Amos chapter 3, verse 6. And in, in the prophet in this particular passage sets up several rhetorical questions. And if you're not familiar, sometimes I would hear people say something and I'd say, well, no, what's that? A rhetorical question is a question that you're supposed to just instinctively know the answer. And that is, and he started um, some of those rhetorical questions down in verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Uh, will a lion roar in the forest, verse 4, if he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he hath, not, if he hath taken nothing? He's a, asking a bunch of rhetorical questions in a row, and you're supposed to just know the answer off the top of your head. It should be obvious. Come to verse 6. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? The trumpet is a trumpet of warning of battle. If there's an impending invasion... Think of it in the ancient world. There's an enemy outside your gates. The trumpet is blown that there's an attack going on. Do you think people are not going to be afraid? It's obvious they would. I, I'd be concerned about my wife and children. I'd be concerned about uh, you know getting to the gate, the walls, whatever. And so the prophet asks again a question that we're all supposed to get, we're all supposed to understand without even thinking, can a trumpet be blown in the city, a trumpet of calling for an attack that's going on against our city? Is that going to happen and people not be afraid? The obvious answer is no, that's obvious. It will, it, people would absolutely be afraid. Then he asks one more rhetorical question. Shall there be evil or calamity? That's the word there. Shall there be calamity in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Just as obvious as when the trumpet blows that an attack is coming and we're in the middle of an attack. So, so certain is it that when calamity comes, God is in the middle of it. God's got something he's doing. You say, well, what is it, Pastor Lane? Uh, he didn't tell me. And I'm not troubled by that. I don't have to make something up. I will show you some principles. But if we're going to say, well, God's not, you know, God just kind of forgot about us for a little while. Maybe he went out and was doing something else and came back. and Oh, this coronavirus has come. We better pray. Better. Folks, it didn't happen that way. What we do forget is the fact that God, it's often called common grace, that God gives common blessings to all of us. This is a, a city shot um, at, uh, at sunrise. And in, in the context of the sun rising, I want you to notice what Jesus' words here. This is out of the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Well, Lord, this is, this is new truth, by the way, to these people. Love your enemies. Bless people that curse you. Do good to those that hate you. Pray for those that are you, being spiteful to you and, and persecuting you. What do you mean? The next verse, he ties this into the nature of God. 
that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, on, and, and re- sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know, the, 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 God doesn't say, you know what, that city's been so bad last night. There's so many people that have done so many bad, there's, there's, there's all kind of gambling going on, taking advantage of people, there's the prostitution going on, there's, there were three people that were murdered there last night, there was a riot. There were all these terrible things that were going on. Drunkenness. There's all kinds of nasty things. The guy was beating his wife there. Children being abused. I'll tell you what. There's no sun coming up over that city this morning. He doesn't do that, does it? We take his kindness and the faithfulness of his creation for granted. And the reality is that if so many of us, if God gave us exactly what we wanted, if our favorite ball teams all won the championship, and let's say that, 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 that we came into all kinds of money, and we got a huge promotion at work, and we became very famous, and all these wonderful things happened to us, how many of us would turn around and use it for ourselves instead of worshiping God? How many of us would go off and completely forget about Him? We take all of his blessings as if that's just the way it's supposed to be. Even though the reality is that many of us are at the foot of the cross putting him up there with our rebellious acts against him, with the things that we say, the, the thoughts that we think, the attitudes that we show. And then we expect that God's just supposed to do all these wonderful things for us without any stepping in. And the reality is, folks, he steps in with calamity to wake us up to eternal realities. Here's a picture of a tsunami coming in. That's a real picture. At times, God does bring calamity. And can I give you one of the reasons for it? We don't always know every... Just like Job didn't know all the reasons for why God would brought calamity into his life, but we do know some things. One of them is to wake you up to eternity. Here's Jesus talking in Mark chapter 9. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Can you imagine losing your hand? That'd be a calamitous thing, would it not? All of a sudden you go to work. You lose a hand. Boy, that would bother me. But Jesus said, you know, it'd be better to lose your hand to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. He went on to mention your foot. He mentioned your eye. What is he saying? A calamity. Something that would be that would maim you for life would be better than for you to enter into eternal punishment. And we went on to say, where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. God often brings calamity to wake people up to eternal realities. Let me just give you then some biblical reality. We've seen that sovereignty is a comfort, but sovereignty can also be a, 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 a point of confusion. And an irritation because we can get we can get angry with God. God, if you're in control, why this? Why that? Why that? Let me just give you some realities now, straight from the scripture. Number one, you and I do not get to choose what God is like. God didn't take a poll and say, you know what? I'm going to create a bunch of people and then I'm going to ask them what they should make me like. And if you want to make God, you want to say, well, I don't, Pastor Jones, I don't agree with with you. And again, I'm not the big issue. It's not me, but here's the bottom line. You and I, neither one of us get to choose what God's like. 
Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 6, is the second of the Ten Commandments, which is, Thou shalt not make any graven image. And you know what that's all about? That means this, don't make your own God. Well, my God's going to be a God that only does good things and never, never punishes anybody. My God's a God that doesn't bring calamity. Maybe just say, forgot about it or got, got away or fell asleep. Or You can make up a God that you want to, but that's, first of all, a violation of one of his clear commands. And number two, it's not a real God. That's the problem. But I'll tell you what God is like. Psalm 145, verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, holy in all his works. He really is good. You say, well, I don't see it. You don't have to see it. I will tell you this, he is good. He's good. You see it in all kinds of different ways, but you may not want to see it. I'm just telling you he's good. And I'm going to tell you this, you're going to be in great calamity. You want to sail this life without him. Reality number two. United not get to choose what God does. In Romans chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, God speaks about who he is and what he does. He says this, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Why did you make me like this? A lot of people are doing that today. The whole transgender movement is in that regard right there. You made me a man, I don't want to be a man. Can I just say this? God's the creator and you're not. And that's not going to change. And he's not intimidated by whatever we try to do. So the thing formed, say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Verse 21, hath not the, power, the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? I don't have any control over what God does. And there are times when that can be frustrating. He's taking a loved one home, and I don't like it. Someone was allowed to hurt me. I don't like it. Some circumstance came into my life. I don't like it. It brings to reality number three. Scriptures reveal God's rule over a convergence of choices. That's, by the way, uh, you probably can't see it very well, but that's just an equation where someone's trying to figure out convergence. Convergence, the idea is a number of things coming together. <clears throat> Think of Job. You got God's will. You got Satan's will. You got wicked people's will who are stealing stuff from Job. You got other people around Job who are betraying who are his three friends who's using their will to accuse Job falsely. You got, you got friends and acquaintances of Job that are forsaking him now that he's suffering. And you got Job's will. You got a convergence of a number of different things. And what I'm telling you is this you nor I have all the information to be able to make the right equation. So we're trying to figure out okay, what is God doing in this pestilence? He may reveal some things and do some things in your own life, but the reality is simply this you're not going to understand all of God's mind. You're not, neither am I. And I think anybody that tries to say that you do, that's it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty risky thing. Next reality. You do not have enough information to question God's choices. The person that says, well, I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist because there are bad things that happen and there can't be a good God. Can I just say that equation doesn't even begin to have the factors involved to make that kind of a rationale. 
And I would just, uh, just challenge that the majority of atheists have not done their intellectual rigor or even had the intellectual honesty to ask this question, where did you get the idea of morality from in the first place? Where did you get the idea of right and wrong? If there is no God, if there is no moral authority, why are we upset that people are dying? Is it not the survival of... That's just, it's just luck, it's just happenstance. The very fact that you'd be angry that a God who could be moral would exist, under, uh, um, it just uh, shows that you have, a, you have an inherent morality that God gave you. You're breathing his air. Bring you back to another picture, this one of space from the Hubble telescope. <clears throat> That's called the Hubble, um, what's it called? It's an ultra deep field, I believe. There it is. Every dot of light you see on that is not a star, it's a galaxy. The God who spread that out, who created that, He says this to you when you want to question who he is and what he does. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. He said, you're going to have to give that, that foolish thinking up. And let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And it's the next verse where he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And the verse after that, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. Coming back, the, the, I don't know if you realize it, but the pale blue dot picture has been taken again this time, this year, 2020. It's on the right angle, this one that I chose. And I just want you to bring you up to this reality, and that is God is far more interested in your eternal well-being than in your temporal happiness. He'd a whole lot rather that your health go downhill than that your soul be in hell forever. Think about the fact, okay, I'm guessing, I didn't do enough research on this particular photo, but the other photo was from 3.7 billion miles away. Let's make a straight line in your mind from that Voyager 1 telescope in 1990 all the way back to the Earth, 3.7 billion miles Now, that is a finite line. We know how long that would be. Eternity is an infinite line. Now, even on that 3.7 billion uh, mile line, if that represented eternity, how much space would your lifetime, your life on earth, take on that line? You could not make it small enough if you lived a thousand years, okay, let's say, let's say that, okay, here's a, a child dies at six. Here's a man that dies at 6,000. Those dots would still be infinitely small, no matter how large your life on this planet was compared to eternity. God is far more interested in your eternal well-being than he is, whether or not your team wins the World Series, or whether or not you can walk like you'd like to, or whether or not you, you die at 60 or six. God is interested in where you spend eternity. And many times he brings calamity into your life so that you'll look up and get beyond just living for this tiny dot of time. Maybe well, you're in that spot. Maybe you've been living for yourself. Reality. 
God's sovereignty does not eliminate your responsibility. The fact that God is in control doesn't mean you don't have choices to make. They come together so many times in the scripture. That's a painting, by the way, of Judas. <clears throat> you can't see it probably, you may, unless you had a really good screen. But the people <clears throat> who have arrested Christ are right up here in the end of the painting. Very interesting way he did it. What the painter was showing was Judas was left behind to be alone with his 30 pieces of silver after he betrayed the Lord. He went out, if you remember, and hung himself. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is describing the situation of Judas. And he says this, verse 24. <clears throat> the Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. You know what he's saying? God's in control. God is sovereign over the situation. I'm going to be betrayed, totally innocent person. I'm going to be crucified for this. This is happening as it is written of him. This means that God is totally in control of this situation. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It doesn't change the reality that Judas is responsible for the choice that he made. You can't just throw your hands up and say, well, God's got it all under control, so it doesn't matter what I do. No, that's not true either. Again, your equation isn't adding up. God's mind's bigger than yours. He's bigger than mine. You say, Pastor, can you figure out how it all works? No, I can't, but I tell you this. I can just tell you what the, some of the factors are, and one of the factors is this. You're, responsible, you're still responsible for your choices. It had been good, Jesus said, for that man, Judas, if he had not been born. So what are we saying? If you're not saved, now is the time to be saved. No better time. That, by the way, is a picture of the cross that was found at ground zero shortly after the Twin Towers collapsed. This piece of metal in the form of a cross. Some of the workers saved that. It meant a lot to some of them. In Isaiah chapter 7, there was a wicked king by the name of Ahaz. He was about to go through a major calamity. There was going to be an invasion, not by just one nation, but by two. They were both coming to get him. They were united together. He was a weak king. It was a calamity, and God was in it. And God came to King Ahaz, and he said this. He said, you can trust me on this one. You don't have to do anything. Just trust me. And he said this in verse 9. He said, if you won't stand now, you're never going to stand. That's really what it's saying. Ahaz, this is your chance. This calamity that's come into your life, this is your chance to turn to me. He said, if you don't do it now, you never will. And you know what? Ahaz made a choice, and that was he was not going to trust God. He went off and ran to the Assyrians, asked for their help, and the man died. I'm convinced a lost man, a wicked man. Calamity came into his life for a good reason, and he threw it away. Through that opportunity away. And I also say that it's no better time for God's people to get right with the Lord. Let me give you some verses. When I shut up the heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. By the way, um, you think. In today's, it's not a specific country now that God's working through. It's his people at large. It's a worldwide thing, the Christian churches. If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. There's a very similar passage. This one gets into more detail. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8. Listen to what it says. 
when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight, mildew, locusts, grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is. Are you saying, Pastor, are you saying God's in all those things? Yeah, I am. Well, I'm telling you, there are no, are no accidents with God. Whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, when each man knows the plague of his own heart. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the reality that the plague that we're experiencing right now should maybe open our eyes to some plagues in our own hearts? Am I really living for eternity? Or am I living for the next sporting event? Those have been taken away, haven't they? Am I living for eternity or am I living for my job? Well, some of us can't work any longer. Am I living for eternity or am I living really for my family and everything revolves around them? Well, guess what? Some of those are in danger now. We're holding, we're understanding that we hold these things loosely. Maybe we ought to look in the plague of our own heart. An idolatrous, selfish, self-centered heart. When your people sees the plague, each knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward his, this temple, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers." If you don't know Christ as Savior, I would challenge you, if, is there a better time possibly right than right now to in a time of calamity and uncertainty to say, Lord, I want to get my eyes off this temporal life in which I'm, about, which I'm living and I want to get my eyes on eternity. I want to make sure I know Christ as Savior. And open up your heart and invite Him in. Jesus said, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. If you're a Christian, have you been thinking about the eternal issues or have you been focusing on the things that really aren't going to matter? See the plague in your own heart. Turn and walk with God again. God acts in history, and often he does so with little explanation. Instead of questioning his judgment, he expects you, if you are his follower, to know him well enough to trust him even when you cannot understand what's going on. If you do not yet have a personal relationship with Christ, the Lord can use times of calamity to turn your attention to eternal issues. God orchestrates circumstances in your life to give you a chance to seek Him, but He will not force you to do so. He has given you the privilege and responsibility of choosing whether you want to belong to His family. If we can help in any way, feel free to contact us at CawkinsBaptistChurch.com or on Facebook.